Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warns the federal government could run out of money to pay its bills by June 1st unless lawmakers raise the debt ceiling. It's Tuesday, May 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, union writers go on strike against major Hollywood studios in a dispute caused by the changing way we watch TV and movies. Also this hour... I do think smaller institutions are by very nature more agile and responsive. As Massachusetts museums adapt to a post-pandemic world, they're finding that size matters. And the fast growth of dollar store chains in cities and rural areas. Well, to me, dollar stores are the bread and butter of small towns because we don't have Walmart here. So everything you need is at the dollar stores here. But some argue those stores do more harm than good. In sports, Celtics lose, Red Sox win, cloudy with some rain today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden has called the top bipartisan congressional leaders to the White House next week to discuss the nation's debt limit. The federal government will run out of money as early as June 1st and won't be able to pay the bills it has already incurred unless Congress raises the debt limit. Republicans say they won't without steep government spending cuts. President Biden says he won't let the GOP use the debt ceiling as a hostage for negotiations. Experts warn breaking the debt limit will cause economic calamity. Later today, the Senate Judiciary Committee will examine ethics rules governing the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR's Windsor Johnston has more. The hearing comes after reports that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted and failed to disclose lavish gifts from a wealthy Republican donor. Another investigation found that Justice Neil Gorsuch sold property to the head of a law firm that frequently appears before the high court. Charles Jay, a law professor at Indiana University, spoke to NPR ahead of today's hearing. What the Supreme Court has been had for the last several years is overtures from Congress saying adopt a code. And the court has basically come back last week and said the status quo is fine by us, go away. To me, that's just tone deaf. Chief Justice John Roberts turned down an invitation from the Senate Judiciary Committee to testify at today's hearing. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The White House has announced that it is ending COVID-19 vaccine mandates for federal workers and international travelers. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the requirements will end on May 11th, the same day the public health emergency is lifted, too. The vaccine requirements will also be lifted for federal contractors, healthcare workers, and Head Start educators. President Biden ordered the vaccine requirement two years ago at the urging of public health experts. The administration says the mandates bolstered vaccinations and helped ensure the safety of workers in critical areas. The White House now says that since January 2021, COVID-19 deaths have declined 95 percent and hospitalizations are down 91 percent. U.S. officials say that while vaccination remains one of the most important tools in protecting Americans' health, the country is in a different phase where the measures are no longer necessary. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. A deadly dust storm in southern Illinois yesterday led to a multi-vehicle pileup on Interstate 55 south of the capital, Springfield. Six people were killed and more than 30 other people were hurt. Quiana Penson was driving toward Chicago when she ran into the dust storm. She said she heard booms from gasoline tanks, and then it got worse. It felt like a war zone. We could see bodies that were just lifeless laying in the grass on the side of the road. Illinois State Police say that section of Interstate 55 remains closed. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The white man accused of killing an Afro-Latino man with his car in Belmont two years ago now faces life in prison. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, a jury convicted Dean Capsalis of second-degree murder and a violation of constitutional rights. Witnesses said Dean Capsalis and Henry Tapia got into an argument on a quiet residential street in Belmont. Then, Capsalis yelled a racial slur, got into his pickup truck, and ran over Tapia. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan says the verdict makes clear that Tapia's murder was a hate crime. We should make no mistake. This was a racially motivated, senseless tragedy. The second-degree murder conviction carries an automatic life sentence. Capsalis was also found guilty for assault and battery with a deadly weapon and leaving the scene of an accident. Tapia left behind a partner and three children. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. T officials are investigating a second incident of debris falling from the ceiling at the Harvard station. A woman was injured yesterday after a brace that supports equipment hit her as it fell. Two months ago, a ceiling panel fell and narrowly missed someone walking on the platform. The ceiling at the Harvard station was inspected after that incident. Redline service is running normally this morning. Advocates for unhoused people are pushing for new state laws to protect them. That comes as the city of Boston removes the tents of people experiencing homelessness in the South End. The latest clearing out effort began yesterday, days after people living in the encampment were informed. Kelly Turley is with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. She says advocates want state lawmakers to pass a bill of rights for the homeless. There is legislation pending in the Commonwealth that would recognize and affirm the rights of people while they're experiencing homelessness and make sure that um, people's right to rest and eat and pray and be in public spaces are protected in Massachusetts. Turley says the bill has been filed in both the House and Senate. On Beacon Hill, lawmakers are considering a bill to expand access to raw, unpasteurized milk. Adam Frenier reports that right now that milk can only be sold at the farms where it's produced. The legislation would allow for delivery or for it to be sold as part of a farm share program. Jocelyn Langer with the Northeast Organic Farming Association's Massachusetts chapter says right now many consumers live too far from farms to buy raw milk. Either your farm has to be close enough to a city that people can come out to the farm themselves, um, but then the land is so expensive you can't afford to farm. Or you find affordable land in a rural area and then it's too far away from a population center. So without being able to deliver the milk, you don't really have a market. Advocates of raw milk say there are health benefits to drinking it, including for those who are lactose intolerant. But some health agencies, including the CDC, warn since it isn't pasteurized, it can contain dangerous bacteria. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Live Nation, presenting Van Morrison, live in concert May 14th and 15th at the Box Center Schubert Theater. Tickets and more info at LiveNation.com. 
The Celtics lost to the Sixers 119-115 to last night at the Garden in Game 1 of their playoff series. Game 2 will be tomorrow night. The Red Sox beat the Blue Jays 6-5 to last night at Fenway Park. The two teams will play again tonight. There's a line of thunderstorms moving into Worcester right now. It's raining west and south of Boston, but it's sunny right now outside of our studio. That may change. Scattered showers are expected today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 50s. Mostly cloudy tonight with a slight chance of some rain. Mid-40s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with more showers possible in the mid-50s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston at 7.08. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Hollywood writers are striking against the major studios. Yeah, writers are demanding updates to their contracts to keep up with the streaming era, and they don't want to be replaced by AI. After talks failed last night, leaders of the Writers Guild of America Union called on their members to stop working. Their three-year contract with the studios expired at midnight. Here to tell us all about it is NPR's culture correspondent, Manolita Barco, who is in L.A. Amandalita, the Writers Guild of America has been in negotiations with the studio since March. So tell us more about this latest development. Yeah, well, the WGA told its members that this afternoon they'll begin picketing outside studios represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney, Discovery, Warner, NBC, Universal, Paramount, and Sony. The striking writers might be joined by actors, directors, and behind-the-scenes workers. Their unions are supporting the WGA. And in a statement last night when the Guild announced the strike, they said that their negotiators had had tried to make a fair deal, but quote, the studio's responses have been wholly insufficient given the existential crisis writers are facing. Now, in its own statement, the AMPTP said it had presented a package proposal to the Guild that included what it called generous increases in compensation for writers. The Studios Alliance also said that the sticking points had something to do with mandatory staffing and the duration of employment on shows. What exactly have writers been asking for? Well, these writers say they should be paid more for writing films, TV shows, and now streaming series. And they say, especially with the shift to streaming, their work has been devalued. Writers I've interviewed tell me the residuals that they're getting are just peanuts. That's what the money that they get when their episodes are rerun. They also say that the streamers are asking for fewer episodes in each season, and that means less work and less money for them. I talked to Alex O'Keefe, one of the writers for the FX series, The Bear. Yes, the show is a hit, but I don't get paid every time somebody watches it. I don't get paid every time somebody says, yeah, chef, hey, I don't expect to make the majority of the profits or anything like that. I just added my spice. It was a whole operation to cook up that show. But we don't receive the residuals that people associate with television shows. Alex says writers are gig workers with no job security, constantly having to look for work. And he told me that between gigs, he is broke. You mentioned the uh, deadline passed at midnight. Um, What have uh, studios been saying about this? Are they open to keeping negotiations going? Well, they did leave the door open for that, and they said they were looking for the long-term health and stability of the industry. These contract negotiations have been happening at a time when the streamers are facing concerns about their profitability, and there also, of course, are worries about a possible recession. Over the past year or so, companies such as Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Amazon, and Netflix have laid off thousands of employees. 
All right, so tonight, uh, Mandalit, or later today when people start to watch stuff, uh, how will our watching be affected by the strike? Well, you know, the studios have reportedly been stockpiling scripts for months. Viewers might not notice any changes right away for most TV shows or streaming series or films, but audiences might notice tonight or this weekend the effect on late-night talk shows and SNL. Those writers won't be working. That's NPR culture correspondent Manalita Del Barco in Los Angeles. Thanks. Thanks. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation wants the U.S. to reconsider the size of the bank accounts the government insures. The FDIC's suggestion to lift a cap on business accounts past $250,000 comes after the weekend collapse of First Republic Bank. That bank failed, and all of its deposits and most of its assets were sold to J.P. Morgan Chase, the nation's biggest bank. And now, well, it's even bigger. Has it grown too large? We'll ask a former head of the White House Economics Advisor Council Thomas Phillipson. He's here with us. He's a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago and joins us by Skype. Good morning. Good morning. So, you know, there are regulations to stop banks from growing too big. And in order for this sale to happen, J.P. Morgan got a waiver um, to own more than the percentage of deposits allowed. Why was this exception necessary? Well, I think the problem is that we are getting these too big to fail policies are essentially increasing uh, concentration in the banking sector. And that's what people worry about, because that ultimately leads to lower deposit rates and higher interest rates on loans, etc. I think FDIC, when they get in into a situation when they're bailing out a bank like First Republic, they're looking at their costs essentially in the future and they're trying to minimize those. So it's an additional bias that they have for big players. JP Morgan is by far the largest bank in the country. It's 2.4 trillion in deposits. And this is just a 3% add to their uh, deposits of taking on uh, First Republic. Uh, What does it mean for consumers? You mentioned interest rates getting higher. What does it mean for consumers when a bank gets this large? Well, in general, in any industry, when you have a lot of concentration, you have less price competition. Less price competition in the banking sector means lower deposit rates for deposits you make to them and higher rates on the interest rates uh, that they lend out at. So that's the worry in any industry, including banking. The the difference is in banking is that there's sort of a uh, aspect of being big is good because you don't have the you have more diversification in your portfolio you essentially so you don't you're less likely to fail and also the regulations are favoring these larger ones because they have tighter regulations than the smaller ones so what does this mean for smaller banks this particular situation jp morgan chase shares now climbing after the sale first republic's depositors are okay and but that doesn't mean the same thing for investors who are wiped out here so in the future what does this say for smaller banks Well, I mean, we've seen a large amount of deposits go from the small to the large with this crisis. It's a pretty big crisis, three of the largest uh, bank failures in the last few months that has occurred. Uh, And uh, I think, you know, the smaller banks are used to be more you know, needed in the sense that you needed to actually interact with your customer. And now everything is mobile, so it's not necessarily clear they have the same economic efficiency role as they used to. But mobile banking also makes it a much more uh, 
prone world to what we call bank runs when uninsured deposits or insured depositors run to the bank and try to get their money out when there is a crisis. That used to literally be people running to the bank, yeah. but now it's just now it's just people clicking to the bank essentially. So you you saw First Republic lose about a hundred billion in a couple of days just because it goes so fast with mobile banking. Now this crisis, you call it a crisis. What needs to be done to stop more banks from failing beyond these three? Well, I think, I mean, you can't have a fail-free banking system. That's not good for pr competition, right, or price competition that we talked about. So I think, you know, the the poor people in the, uh, you know, in the, in the economy are protected by FDIC. If you have less than a quarter million in deposits or cash at a bank, which which you know covers a large share of the population you are protected by uh, your deposits being insured by the federal uh, deposit insurance corporation so the question is are you going to have a system where the rich people are also covered by regulation and people disagree on Thomas Philipson was acting chair of the council of economic advisors in the Trump administration he's now at the University of Chicago thank you for your time Thank you. Okay, now consider this. A lone figure knee-deep in a creek, bent over a metal pan, sifting through dirt and gravel in search of gold. No, not a scene from the 1800s. It's California today during what some are calling Gold Rush 2.0. Since our big rains this summer, the rivers and the creeks have really flooded and brought a lot of new material off the banks into the river which has made kind of like a little gold rush going on here. That's Albert Fausel. He owns a hardware store in Placerville and sells equipment for searching for precious metals. I've got people from New York coming over. I've got people from San Francisco just taking a day trip up here. People from even Idaho coming down here. These conditions for prospecting gold are like nothing Nick Preblick has seen before. What it used to be like we'd have to dig for a lot longer just to get down to the gold. Right now, we're able to get down to where the gold is real easy without even digging hardly at all. Preblick's family has been gold mining for generations. He spoke to us while he was out at Woods Creek near Jamestown, California. Sitting here looking at the creek right now, it's real peaceful, you know, just to hear the running water. You know, it's kind of meditative at the same time. It is a lot like fishing. It's a mixture between fishing and playing a slot machine, you know, because you could hit some money just all of a sudden, too. Preblick is known to his friends as Nugget Nick. He says he hits the jackpot a lot as recently as last weekend. I found about $250 worth of gold. I was out here all day, but I might have done a couple hours worth of digging the whole time. That's $125 an hour. That's a pretty good wage. Nugget Nick also teaches people to pan for gold, though he says it's not the way to get rich quick. The thing about doing it for a living is that if you don't find gold that day or enough that month, how are you going to pay all your bills? It's a much better hobby. If you're counting just on the gold to pay your bills, I wouldn't count on that. Hardware store owner Albert Fausel agrees, but says some people do get lucky. I'd say you're joining a lot of people and it's tough out there. It's not as easy as it looks, but some people do get lucky on their first try. And I think you could, you know, find that pocket of gold or you could hit that vein or you could even maybe hit some, you know, lost artifact, like a $20 gold piece that a miner dropped out of his pocket. Hey, as long as I can turn that gold piece into a chain, it'd be worth it.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Tuesday morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, how German solar panel manufacturers are working with European lawmakers to revive their industry and counter China's dominance. It's 720. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and new work by Boston Ballet Principal Kristen Fentroy at Citizens Bank Opera House, May 19th, bostonballet.org. And Nuance, the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. The FDA is deciding whether to approve the first gene therapy for the most common type of muscular dystrophy, raising hopes among parents of children suffering from the disease. So if this moves the needle in their life expectancy, even if it does it for a day, it's worth it. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Some worry there's not enough evidence the experimental treatment works. On the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Showers likely today, possibly with a thunderstorm this morning. We'll have highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, mostly cloudy with lows in the mid-40s. We may see some more showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with more showers from about mid-morning to mid-afternoon. We'll have a high in the mid-50s. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime from anywhere with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Europe wants to make solar power its biggest energy source by the end of this decade. And that'll mean tripling the amount of energy generated by solar in just seven years. Right now, the majority of solar panels are made in China. But as NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, politicians and clean energy businesses in Europe are hoping to change that. Bright yellow robotic arms appear to be waving and then saluting as they pick up silicon solar cells and gently affix them to glass panels here at the Heckert Solar Assembly Floor in Chemnitz, the German city near the Czech border. Sasha Hahn watches quietly at the end of the line, arms crossed, as his colleagues place finished solar panels into boxes labeled Made in Germany. A day we make uh, 3,000, and we also say in a week 20,000. 20,000 panels in one week, and it's still too less because the market wants more. The market wants more because in Germany, energy is suddenly hard to come by. Russia's invasion of Ukraine forced Germany to do away with its massive supply of imported Russian natural gas, and now it's again looking to alternatives like solar power. I say again because more than a decade ago, Germany's solar power industry was booming. We were one of the market leaders in 2012. 
Uwe Krautwurst heads marketing for Heckert Solar. He says the golden age of Germany's solar power industry was the first decade of this century. That's when the government incentivized solar panels with feed-in tariffs, paying solar panel owners back for contributing energy to the grid. But in 2013, the government changed the law that made renewables more expensive and the industry collapsed. 70,000 people in Germany's solar industry lost their jobs, and Heckert found itself one of the only manufacturers left in this once popular renewable energy park known as Saxony's Solar Valley. And so the industry moved from Germany to Asia. Without government support, German solar panels were quickly replaced by ones made in China, which since 2011 invested 10 times more in the industry than Europe did. They had uh, free research centers, governmental research centers on the side of the producers, um, uh, subsidized energy, so, so many components which made life, technical life, easy in China. Joachim Goldbeck, CEO of Goldbeck Solar, says starting around a decade ago, German companies watched as their Chinese rivals took over every step of the global solar power supply chain. Last year, China made 97 percent of the silicon wafers that go into solar panels and more than three quarters of the world's solar panels themselves. The only way of going against that uh, in Germany or in the U.S. or anywhere else would basically somewhat developing a similar strategy. That someone, says Goldbeck, is the Biden administration, which as part of the Inflation Reduction Act put forth a range of incentives for solar panel producers and owners. And I think now with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., there is a strong will to do something similar to position uh, this industry back in the U.S., and this clear statement is now lacking in, in Germany. When he's not CEO of a solar company, Goldbeck serves as president of the German Solar Industry Association. He says German politicians talk about bringing back the country's solar industry, but they're not walking the walk with subsidies and tax credits like China or the U.S. has. German member of parliament Katrin Ulig begs to differ. We have an aim for an at least 80% renewable energies in the electricity sector by 2030 now. So we are changing the environment for companies to invest in Europe. Ten years ago, when the floor collapsed from Germany's solar industry and the conservative government of Angela Merkel instead prioritized natural gas from Russia, Ulig was so frustrated she decided to run for office. She's now a member of Germany's Green Party, representing the western city of Bonn. She points to the European Union's Net Zero Industry Act, which proposes that 40% of all solar panels installed in Europe be produced in Europe. She says Germany is working on similar measures. If we had built more renewable energy sources, we wouldn't be in general as dependent on fossil fuels as we are now. But at the same time, you cannot change the past. So I'm looking forward. Europe's solar industry is looking forward, too. Gunther Erfurt is CEO of the Swiss company Maya Berger, a leading solar panel manufacturer. He says Europe's Net Zero Industry Act has not yet passed parliament, and it may take a while to do so. But if it does, he says, it, alongside the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, could shift the global balance of clean technology away from China. Our industry requires massive scale in order to become super competitive also against um, Asian rivals and in particular Chinese companies. 
so I believe it could be a double strike if um, if EU would uh, also uh, put packages together for temporary state aid, uh, helping to put fertilizer on the industry to to help it growing. But Erfurt says the biggest challenge is time. It's taking the EU parliament too long to pass a bill that would generate clean tech investment. That's part of the reason that Maya Berger has decided to build its next big solar panel plant not in the EU, but in Arizona to take advantage of tax credits in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Back on the solar panel assembly line in Chemnitz, Heckert Solar's Uwe Krautfurst is also hoping that both the EU and Germany act fast on helping resurrect his country's solar industry. He says an ongoing Chinese monopoly of the world's solar panels is dangerous. One danger is, uh, for example, that you have no industry here and no further research and no further developments here in the European Union. And that, he says, would be a sad ending for a country that helps spur growth in the solar power industry in the first place. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Chemnitz, Germany. This is NPR News. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Reserve begins its latest policy meeting today. Economists and many on Wall Street are expecting the Fed to announce another quarter-point hike in interest rates when Fed policymakers wrap up their talks tomorrow. The Fed has raised rates nine times since March of last year to try to bring down inflation in the economy. It remains far above the Fed's annual target of 2 percent. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning Congress the U.S. could default on its debts as early as June 1st if lawmakers don't vote to raise the federal government's borrowing authority. NPR Scott Horsley says congressional leaders are expected to discuss the issue with President Biden in the coming days. President Biden invited top lawmakers to a White House meeting next week. The administration says Biden will use that meeting to stress the urgency of preventing a government default. Separately, they say, the president will discuss a process to address government spending and next year's budget. Now, separately is the key word there. The administration wants to make the point that spending and budgeting are fair game for negotiations and horse trading, but lifting the debt ceiling is not. The White House says the Biden administration will drop most of the remaining federal COVID-19 vaccine requirements next week. That's when the country's coronavirus public health emergency officially ends. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
It's been two months now since the city of Boston approved a rent control measure, and it's gone nowhere. State legislators have to sign off on the measure, and as WBUR's Steve Brown reports, there seems to be no rush to get it done. The bill has been sent to the Joint Housing Committee, but so far no hearing has been scheduled. The bill's sponsor, first-year representative Sam Montano, says they are optimistic it will ultimately pass. That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm counting my chickens before they're hatched, but I think I have to have that hope, otherwise why would I carry such a controversial piece of legislation? House Majority Leader Mike Moran says members went on record nearly three years ago opposing an amendment that would have allowed municipalities to implement rent control, and he doesn't think the votes are there. What is the purpose of taking up this, this bill at this point in time, given the fact we just took it up two years ago, in 2020? Still, a spokesman for Mayor Wu says the administration will continue lobbying the legislature to pass the bill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. District attorneys in Massachusetts are asking police officers who are witnesses in a trial about complaints against them. That's happening even if the complaints aren't related to the case the officer is testifying on. District attorneys tell the Boston Globe they want to make sure an officer's testimony is credible. The union representing police officers says it isn't fair to judge officers on allegations that may not be true. MIT is celebrating new leadership. Sally Kornbluth was inaugurated as the university's 18th president yesterday. She's been on the job since January. She addressed the MIT community in the ceremony. For those of us who are called to the challenge of leadership, the world always offers lots of opportunities, but very few could be more compelling than the chance in this moment to lead MIT. Kornbluth says she wants MIT students to lead the charge against the many existential challenges faced by the nation, including climate change. The Institute of Contemporary Art in the Seaport has a new chief curator. Ruth Erickson will be the new head of the ICA's exhibitions and collections. Erickson was part of the curatorial department for nearly a decade before being promoted. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. The Celtics dropped Game 1 of their second-round playoff series against the Sixers. The final at the Garden last night was 119-115. to Game 2 will be tomorrow night here in Boston. Alex Verdugo hit a walk-off home run for the Red Sox last night at Fenway. They beat the Blue Jays 6-5. to Boston and Toronto play again tonight. Upper 50s today with showers and thunderstorms possible all day. Tonight, mid-40s, and we may see some more showers. Tomorrow, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the mid-50s with a good chance of showers for most of the day. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 734. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. And Martinez in Culver City, California. A manhunt continues for the suspect in last weekend's mass shooting, which left five people dead, including a child in the town of Cleveland, Texas. The motive for the killings may have been a noise complaint. 
Lucio Vasquez with Houston Public Media has been following the story. Tell us uh, about the manhunt. Where does it stand? Yeah, so as of right now, well over 200 officers are entering day four in their search for 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa. There is now about an $80,000 reward for any information that leads to an arrest. The last update we've got from the FBI was on Sunday when James Smith, the special agent in charge for the Houston FBI office, said that they didn't have any leads. We do not know where he is. We don't have any tips right now to where he may be. And that's why we've come up with this reward so that hopefully somebody out there can call us. This changed yesterday, however. The sheriff in a neighboring county got a couple of tips that a person looking like Oropeza was walking down the street near a landfill. But after the authorities checked that out, it turned out to be a false alarm. Now, these searches did result in schools getting locked down in these areas, and ultimately these tips were fruitless, and the search continues. Yeah, he's accused of killing four adults and one child. They were his neighbors. What do we know about them? Yeah, the victims were 9-year-old Daniel Guzman, 21-year-old Diana Alvarado, 18-year-old Jonathan Casaraz, 25-year-old Sonia Tabat, and 31-year-old Julissa Rivera. Some of them were related. Uh, there were a total of four Honduran families at the home when the gunman entered with an AR-15 and started shooting. It had all started, according to authorities, when Oropeza was shooting his rifle in the yard and some of his neighbors asked him to stop because a baby was trying to sleep in the home. Now, the FBI says the families are planning funerals and ask the media to give them privacy during the process and not to approach them. Lucia, why has the immigration status of the victims and also the alleged shooter all of a sudden come up? Well, Governor Greg Abbott sent out a tweet uh, Sunday morning announcing a $50,000 reward along with some other local authorities comprising of that $80,000 reward money. But in that tweet, he also called the victims illegal immigrants, which got some backlash on social media. Yesterday, he backpedaled that tweet and said that at least one of the victims may have been in the U.S. legally and then said that he regrets that the focus on the immigration status is distracting from capturing the alleged shooter. Now, Oropesa, authorities say, is a Mexican national and has been deported from the U.S. before. You've been around uh, Cleveland, Texas. Uh, is this a place where someone, if they wanted to, could hide pretty easily? In my opinion, yes, absolutely. I was there yesterday and can tell you that the area was very wooded with lots of places where you could potentially lie low. A lot of trees in the area as well. Police have been using search dogs, helicopters, drones, and have gone door to door. They're also reaching out to the Spanish-speaking community in the area by setting up billboards in multiple languages. Authorities did find Oropesa's uh, cell phone and the gun they believed was used in the shooting as well. The FBI recommends calling them if he's spotted and not to approach as he could still be armed and dangerous. All right, that's Lucio Vasquez with Houston Public Media. Thanks a lot. Thank you. There's a good chance that right now you're just a few miles away from a discount store with the word dollar in its name. In fact, probably lots of them. The three major dollar chains have more locations in the U.S. than Starbucks, Walmart and McDonald's combined. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom explains the dollar store takeover. If you had a dollar for every time a dollar general opened up, you get three bucks every day. Impressive, especially considering other big retailers are closing stores. But just as impressive is where they open. Not just big cities, but rural areas where those other retailers don't go. Places like April Russell's hometown of York, Alabama. Well, to me, dollar stores are 
the bread and butter of small towns because we don't have Walmart here. So everything you need is at the dollar stores here. So which actually I'm going to one in a minute. So York's in Alabama's Black Belt, an area known for rich soil and high poverty. And like a lot of small rural towns, York doesn't have a grocery store. It's just hard to make a buck in a place where there are so few customers. The grocery store lasted maybe four months and we still had the dollar stores here. Notice she said dollar stores. York's a town of 2,400 people with no grocer, but two different dollar stores, Dollar General and Family Dollar. And that's possible because of the core idea that makes a dollar store a dollar store, cheap, even if prices aren't exactly a dollar. Sometimes the grocery stores are too expensive. Dollar store, you can find the same items, which cheaper. Of course, a big factor in the dollar stores spreading like kudzu is not just cheap prices, but cheap everything like low-cost buildings, hiring few workers, and selling little to no fresh produce. But that doesn't fully explain why you often see dollar stores across the street from each other. Well, part of that comes down to Dollar General being the invading force in a dollar store war. Absolutely, Dollar General is going for the attack on Family Dollar. Karen Short tracks dollar stores for Credit Suisse. Analysts say Dollar General has a strategy and the cash to aggressively push in on Family Dollar's turf. They don't have a problem opening up a better, newer store. And we're nowhere near peak dollar stores, at least if you believe Dollar General CEO Jeff Owen during their December earnings call. You know, in the U.S. alone, we have 16,000 additional opportunities, and uh, we feel great about our ability to capture those. That's 16,000 more stores. Add that to expansion plans from Dollar Tree, and we're talking about possibly doubling the number of dollar stores in the U.S., enough to make a CEO giddy. Stepping back, you can probably uh, hear in my excitement about the real estate and, and our ability uh, to continue to grow here. But the dollar store enthusiasm has been running into a growing dollar store backlash. Why do we need another one when we're already surrounded? Liz Reeves lives in Cullioca, Tennessee. It's a small town about an hour south of Nashville, surrounded by dollar stores, including one just four miles from Reeves' house. We were ecstatic when it was there. Uh, weren't happy that it ran the little store down there out of business. And that's the source behind a lot of the dollar store opposition. Fears their low-cost model makes it harder for local retailers to compete. In 2021, Reeves worried plans to open a Dollar General in Kalioka would eventually shut down the town's one small market. I'm mad at them. I really am. You don't come in and try to overtake where somebody lives because you want to make a dollar. Reeves and her neighbors convinced the county to vote against allowing the Dollar General to open. Other communities have gone even further, with about 50 across the country putting limits on new dollar stores, saying they already have too many. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basahan, Birmingham. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes, it's 745. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. We remember just Canadian singer-songwriter Gordon Lightfoot, who died yesterday, leaving a musical legacy. Well. In a castle dark, 
or a fortress strong. Showers and thunderstorms today with temperatures in the upper 50s. Tonight, mostly cloudy and mid-40s. More showers possible overnight, then mostly cloudy and mid-50s tomorrow with rain possible throughout the day. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. The Environmental Protection Agency is settling with six New England companies it claims failed to properly report their use and release of toxic chemicals. Those companies include Groton-based Hollingsworth and Vos and New Bedford-based AFC Cable Systems. Each will pay about $40,000 to settle the EPA's allegations. Boston-based Vicinity Energy will use the Charles River to create steam energy. The Boston Globe reports the company signed an agreement to build a new system to power its plant near Kendall Square. The system will pull water from the river to make the clean energy. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Martinez. Canadian singer Gordon Lightfoot died Monday night at a Toronto hospital. He was 84 years old. The singer toured for years, even after suffering serious health problems. NPR's Netta Ulabi has this remembrance. Gordon Lightfoot hailed from a tiny town in Ontario, and he wrote songs about Canadian wildlife, weather, streets, and perhaps most famously, a maritime disaster. The captain wired in, he had water coming in, and the good ship and crew was in peril. Later that night when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Gordon Lightfoot was a romantic. Robert Everett Green covered music for the Toronto Globe and Mail. As he's singing it, you're getting the very strong sense that not only is one ship going down, but a whole way of life is disappearing. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the words turn the minutes to hours? Gordon Lightfoot first made his name in Toronto's coffeehouse scene where he impressed folk music stars Ian and Sylvia. Lightfoot himself found international fame in 1971 with a song called If You Could Read My Mind. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old-time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet. 
Critic Robert Everett Green says you can hear some of Lightfoot's favorite themes, loss, longing, and nostalgia, in If You Could Read My Mind. Which is a paradoxical piece because it's a song about inarticulateness, but somehow it really makes an amazing kind of case. Here's someone who really can't say what he wants to say, and yet by singing about that inability, he connects. Everett Green says Lightfoot's raspy, regretful voice perfectly complements his hinterland's image. In fact, there was a great photograph of Lightfoot from the prime of his career, and he was wearing a lumberjack shirt, and he's got his arms crossed. And he looks like he's just about to reach for the axe to start going out and selling that Douglas fir or whatever. She's by Naughty Pine. She lives with the wind. She cries turpentine. Ain't that nice? Gordon Lightfoot never quite displayed the range or inventiveness of contemporaries like Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell, but some fans found the consistency of his wistful ballads reassuring. Everett Green says Gordon Lightfoot's best songs described a fading world. You can't jump a jet plane like you can a freight train. That's not something that looks like it's a good thing for him. It was something that looked like a bad thing, that the freights crossing the prairie with that great sort of lonely moaning whistle sound have been obliterated by jet travel and the shrinking of spaces and the invasion, I guess, of the hinterland that formerly was one of Canada's strengths. You can't jump a jet plane Like you can't a freight train so I best be on the way in the early morning rain. Gordon Lightfoot recorded over 400 songs about what he loved and what he missed. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday morning in Boston, and you're with 90.9 WBNR. Coming up in just a couple minutes, we have the stories of two Massachusetts museums as they struggled to recover from the pandemic and adapt to the post-pandemic world. One thing they've learned is that size may indeed matter. And at 810, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has issued a dire warning with the most precise deadline yet for when the U.S. will run out of money to pay its bills if it doesn't raise the debt ceiling. It's 7.50. I'm Lisa Mullins, host of WBUR's All Things Considered. If you grew up listening to public radio from the back seat of your mom's car, maybe now's the time to thank her. Send her gorgeous Winston flowers and send them from WBUR to support what's become your favorite station. We can deliver the flowers almost anywhere in eastern Massachusetts. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates once again in its ongoing effort to curb inflation. In Hollywood, union writers are on strike following failed contract negotiations. And in Cambridge, the MBTA is looking into why a piece of equipment fell from the ceiling of the Harvard Tea Station, injuring a woman. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Cloudy in upper 50s today with a thunderstorm possible this morning and showers throughout the day. Still cloudy tonight in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a little cooler in the mid-50s with a chance of rain all day. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 751. WBUR supporters include Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. On May 11th, nine days from today, the COVID-19 public health emergency ends. But the ordeal isn't over for many industries across Massachusetts. Arts and culture institutions are still struggling to recover and adapt, including museums of all sizes that closed down for months in 2020. WBUR's Andrea Shea has a tale of two museums. The Museum of Fine Arts is one of the biggest in Boston, but our first stop is New Bedford's largest, the Whaling Museum. Since 1997, Moby Dick fans have gathered here for an annual 25-hour reading of Herman Melville's classic. But when the in-person marathon returned this year for the first time since the pandemic, President and CEO Amanda McMullen says it felt and sounded different. Call me Ishmael. Some of the diehards were like, wait a minute, people aren't supposed to be clapping. And I think it was like, we have made it. And this feeling of like calm seas, the ships come back into port. Like a tsunami, pandemic shutdowns upended museums. Without visitors for months, revenue plunged. That year was tough, right? 2020 navigating that. We had like 17,000 visitors for the whole year when we should be upwards way closer to 80, 90, 100,000. Even with a battered budget, McMullen retained her staff of 47 employees. In return, they created a ton of online content. Now, she says, hybrid offerings, including the Moby Dick Marathon, are here to stay. But to survive, museums need people streaming through their galleries. Ticket sales generate about 30 percent of the Whaling Museum's income. McMullen is relieved attendance is almost back to pre-pandemic levels. In 2020, she says this historical institution's founding mission to serve the community felt more urgent than ever. There was the health crisis, an inevitable financial crisis, a racial reckoning. You can't come out of that year as an institution that should reflect the community without making some strategic decisions to dive deeper on that. One decision was to go full throttle with an oral history project called Common Ground. Since 2020, staff members have been fanning out to record stories from residents of New Bedford, a city known for its large Portuguese-American population. Now their voices fill a gallery and an online archive. My name is Paulina Ruda. My husband and I own WJFD 97.3 FM, uh, the Portuguese radio station. 
Being accessible to the community is a priority, but so is attracting audiences beyond New Bedford. A report commissioned by the museum found the institution and visitors, including tourists, contributed $10 million to the local economy in 2019. During the pandemic, McMullen's team raised funds to buy a new building across the street so the museum can host major exhibitions in a beautiful new space. That is going to be not only something that we can be deeply proud of, but will be a driver for bringing more people into the community. After weathering the pandemic storm, McMullen likes to refer to her institution in New Bedford as the little museum that could. And she knows bigger museums have faced bigger, more complex problems. I I do think smaller institutions are by very nature more agile and responsive. Matthew Teitelbaum directs the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is a behemoth in terms of building, budget, staff, exhibitions, and visitation. Our trajectory is going entirely in the right direction, more and more people. There's nothing that a museum director likes more than having galleries filled with visitors. But in fiscal year 2022, while operating with reduced hours, the MFA's attendance was 632,000. That's about half of what it was before the pandemic. Now the museum has surpassed that figure, with current visitor numbers 34% higher than this time last year. I don't think we're alone. We're an institution that's still what I would call resetting. To drive audience, Teitelbaum says the museum is investing in a few crucial areas, especially programming. Events have returned, galleries have been renovated, and big shows are back. The MFA used to create exhibitions with a lot of expensive loans from other institutions. Now curators are exploring more stories through the museum's collection of nearly 500,000 objects. And Teitelbaum says there's also a new focus on generating income through shows that travel to other institutions. So as some of you have done for many, many years, I would say that we have redoubled our efforts. And we hope actually we can use the brand of Boston and the MFA to increase the revenue. In the summer of 2020, dramatic revenue losses forced the MFA to lay off 57 employees. 56 took early retirement. Now, Teitelbaum says, rebuilding staff and fostering inclusivity are critical for new initiatives. The MFA moved forward on a rebranding campaign last year with the tagline, Here All Belong. I think that we are for sure a more aware institution. What hasn't changed is Teitelbaum's optimism for the future. He believes museums play a vital role in society, and evolving for a post-pandemic world will take time, no matter what their size. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. On Morning Edition, how two local dance companies rebuilt and evolved since the start of the pandemic. Listen here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. Showers possible all day today, and we may see a thunderstorm this morning. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. Those fall to the mid-40s tonight. Overnight, there's a chance of more showers. Then tomorrow, mostly cloudy, mid-50s, and a good chance of showers. It's 52 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include MIT Solve, 
Join the Tech for Social Impact event of the year this Thursday on MIT campus. Register now at solve.mit.edu. And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Yasmin Ammer and for Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the MBTA. There will be shutdowns this month, and the T's finances are looking a little shaky. How does this affect you? Text 617-766-0382. That's Radio Boston this morning at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is warning of devastating consequences unless the U.S. raises its debt ceiling as soon as June 1st. It's Tuesday, May 2nd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up with the business dealings of Supreme Court justices in the spotlight on Capitol Hill today, some experts want a code of ethics for the court. It is a nonpartisan, good government measure for the court to have a code of conduct. Also this hour, two months after it was approved by Boston City Councilors, the push for rent control appears to have stalled on Beacon Hill. A lot of members will say, what is the point of even bringing this up? We bring it up every two years. There's other things we can talk about with regard to housing. And companies say they're building homes for their employees to make up for the lack of affordable housing. In sports, Celtics lose, Red Sox win, rain and thunderstorms today in the 50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. TV and movie writers have begun a strike against the major Hollywood studios. As NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports, the two sides failed to agree on a new deal before the contract expired at midnight. It's the first time in 15 years members of the Writers Guild of America have gone on strike. The last time it went for 100 days, shutting down Hollywood productions as writers demanded to be paid more for work on movies and shows sold as DVDs and Internet downloads. This time, union leaders say part of their beef has to do with residuals from streaming. In anticipation of the strike, studio executives have reportedly been stockpiling scripts and prepping more reality shows that don't need scriptwriters. Unions for Hollywood actors and those working behind the scenes voted to support the WGA. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. President Biden is set to meet next week with the four top congressional leaders. They are to discuss the debt ceiling, but NPR's Giles Snyder says that does not necessarily mean there's been a breakthrough. The White House is sticking to its call for Congress to pass a clean bill that raises the government's debt ceiling and avoids a first-ever default. The president says he will not negotiate over the issue, but he did call top lawmakers, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to arrange the May 9th White House meeting after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. could potentially default as soon as June 1st. Biden has not met with McCarthy since February. NPR's Giles Snyder prepared that report. The Senate Judiciary Committee hears testimony today focused on whether there should be a code of conduct for the U.S. Supreme Court. 
But as NPR's Nina Totenberg reports, none of the members of the court itself will be there to testify. A wave of investigative stories in the media in recent weeks have precipitated new charges of corruption at the nation's highest court. Though many of the stories feature conduct that's perfectly legal, the cumulative effect has led to a further spiral downward in public confidence in the court. Legal ethics experts, by and large, have called for the court to write its own code of conduct, and there are several such proposals in Congress. But with the filibuster rule in the Senate and the House in Republican hands, there seems to be little likelihood for any of these to be enacted. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. A Missouri judge has extended a hold on a rule that would restrict or eliminate gender-affirming medical care for all transgender people, both children and adults, in Missouri. The rule, imposed solely by the Missouri Attorney General, requires all trans people to meet a long list of requirements first before obtaining medical care. The judge's hold is for two more weeks. It allows the Missouri court to look at the merits of a lawsuit against Attorney General Andrew Bailey. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts residents can choose to buy electricity from a company other than their utility. But a new report out this morning from the Massachusetts Attorney General's office finds that many residents enrolled in plans with these suppliers are overpaying. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. The AG's office started investigating competitive electric suppliers in 2014. It's published several reports about the industry, consistently finding that people who sign up lose, on average, about $200 a year. And those losses add up, says Liz Anderson. She's with the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the AG's office. We have a cumulative loss now over the six years that we have studied of $525 million. As in past reports, the new study also shows that low-income customers are harmed the most. They're more likely to get signed up for these plans, and once on them, they pay higher rates for the same electricity. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Today is Election Day for some Boston-area voters. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more on what they need to know for today's special primary election. Two state representatives, Ed Coppinger and John Santiago, resigned earlier this year for other roles. Santiago's district is anchored by the South End in Dorchester and Coppinger's by West Roxbury, Jamaica Plain, and a slice of Brookline. A late withdrawal in the South End race leaves only Biogen employee and Democrat John Moran in the running. Three Democrats are on the ballot to replace Coppinger. Former City Hall staffer Bill McGregor, lawyer Robert Orthman, and health policy expert Celia Siegel. Top vote-getters in each district advance to the general election May 30th, but they face no Republican opponents. Polls are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's also Election Day in Brookline, where about one-third of the town meeting board is up for re-election. Members of the first Boston Fire Cadet class have begun their pre-academy training programs. Boston Fire Department Diversity Officer Michael Gaskin says the first class is made up of 32 candidates. He says a majority of those candidates are from underrepresented groups. Including 28 percent female. 53 percent of the candidates are people of color to include Latinx, 
African American. Uh, we have one candidate that identified as Middle Eastern and one candidate that identified as Indigenous Alaskan. After finishing the two-year cadet program, graduates may be eligible for admission into the Boston Fire Academy. Mayor Michelle Wu says the cadet program will provide opportunities for people throughout the city to join the fire department. Worcester must pay nearly $27 million for overcharging the neighboring town of Holden to use its sewer system. Yesterday's ruling by a judge is the latest in a nearly decade-long legal battle between the communities. Worcester must also pay Holden 12 percent interest for every year the judgment is not paid. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. The Celtics lost to the Sixers 119-115 to last night in Game 1 of their playoff series. Game 2 will be tomorrow night here in Boston. The Red Sox topped the Toronto Blue Jays 6-5 to last night at Fenway. The Sox and Jays meet again tonight. There are some thunderstorms moving through the Merrimack Valley right now, and a line of showers is heading through Boston and the South Shore. It'll be cloudy today with scattered showers. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. Mostly cloudy tonight with a slight chance of some rain, mid-40s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with more showers possible in the mid-50s. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston at 8.07. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Prompt with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at myprompt.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Sometimes it takes a deadline to get things done. Well, now lawmakers have a deadline. They have to settle the debt ceiling debate by June 1st. Yeah, that's when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the government could run out of money to pay its bills unless Congress acts first to raise the borrowing limit. Yellen's warning adds new urgency to what had been a slow-motion standoff here in Washington. President Biden has called top lawmakers to talks at the White House next week. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with us. Scott, we've known the government cash crunch is nigh. What's Janet Yellen saying about this deadline? She's saying it could come sooner than we thought. Uh, Most forecasters had expected the government would be able to limp along through mid-July, maybe early August before running short of cash. But after reviewing the April tax receipts, Secretary Yellen says the crunch time could come as early as June 1st. Now, it's hard to say exactly. It could be later than that. But at some point, unless the debt ceiling's lifted, the government's going to find itself with more bills to pay than it has cash on hand, and then somebody's going to get stiffed. Uh, Maybe it's a Social Security recipient or a member of the military or a government bondholder. Defaulting on any of those obligations would be unprecedented. So Yellen is urging lawmakers not to let that happen. She wants Congress to let the government borrow more money so it can keep paying all of its bills. And what has been the holdup? House Republicans are demanding big spending cuts and other policy changes in exchange for voting to authorize additional borrowing. Uh, The White House says it's not willing to negotiate. It argues the full faith and credit of the government should not be used as a bargaining chip. We went through something similar to this back in 2011, and a deal was finally struck at the 11th hour, but it was a scarring experience, and Yellen urged lawmakers not to go down that road again. Even coming close to the debt ceiling without raising it We saw in 2011 that led to a 
downgrade of the U.S. credit rating, and this will raise borrowing costs for American households and businesses for a good long time. House Republicans are pretty dug in, though. Last week, they passed a bill by the narrowest of margins that would curb federal spending and impose a wish list of other GOP priorities. In exchange, the bill would let the government keep borrowing money, but only until next spring, when we might have to go through this all over again. Now, Scott, you mentioned how the White House uh, doesn't want to negotiate on this. So what happens now? Well, about the time Yellen spelled out that June 1st deadline yesterday, President Biden invited top lawmakers to a White House meeting next week. The administration says Biden will use that meeting to stress the urgency of preventing a government default. Separately, they say, the president will discuss a process to address government spending and next year's budget. Now, separately is the key word there. The administration wants to make the point that spending and budgeting are fair game for negotiations and horse trading, but lifting the debt ceiling is not. Okay, so what are lawmakers doing? Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is in Israel right now, but he issued a statement saying the House passed its debt ceiling bill, so now it's up to the Senate and the President to act. The Senate has begun going through the motions to consider the House bill, which has no chance of passing in the Democratic-controlled chamber. Democrats call it the Default on America Act. The Senate is also weighing an alternative bill that would simply suspend the debt limit for two more years. And this comes at a really sensitive time for the U.S. economy. So how does the fight over this uh, debt ceiling affect the broader economic outlook? You know, the economy already has plenty of challenges. Uh, Growth is slowing. Prices are still too high. Uh, The Federal Reserve is likely to raise interest rates again tomorrow as part of its ongoing effort to curb inflation. So families and businesses have a lot to contend with. The last thing the economy needs right now is a totally avoidable government default. If you believe Yellen's timetable, lawmakers have a little less than a month to take that threat off the table. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks. You're welcome. Not long ago in Montgomery County, Maryland, a teenager used Narcan to save the life of another teen found unconscious from an overdose in a McDonald's restroom. It's what passes for a positive outcome in the opioid epidemic that's gripping the U.S. Our colleague Michelle Martin saw that story and decided to talk to people in Montgomery County who are coping with the crisis firsthand. The school year is almost over in most of the country, and there have been many milestones. But some of them, unfortunately, have been tragic ones. We already, this school year, lost five young people uh, to overdose deaths. Ninety percent of the overdoses that happen are happening in bathrooms and schools. That's Will Jawando, a council member in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is just outside the nation's capital. He's been hosting public forums on fentanyl and other opioids that are now at the center of the worst drug crisis in U.S. history. That's one reason the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has now decided that naloxone, commonly known as Narcan, can be sold over the counter. Jawando says Narcan should be available everywhere. It makes sense as a public safety measure to have all of our public security guards to carry Narcan, but also to have it available at various places for teachers to access. There's a big discussion now whether students should be carrying it as well. I wanted to know firsthand about the experience, so I called Greg Hill, who has both received and administered life-saving doses of Narcan. We also spoke with his mother, Laura Mitchell. She co-founded the group Montgomery Goes Purple to try to intervene in this epidemic of injury and death caused by substance abuse. She says opioids are more dangerous now than ever before because they include a higher content of unknown substances in the mix. We've seen a rise from about 20 percent of discarded materials from people who use substances 
containing xylazine to now it's 80% in two years. It doesn't respond to naloxone. So if you overdose with it, um, and it can kill you, naloxone is not going to help. Greg, do you mind if I ask you like about your story? Um, my first drug use was 12 or 13. My first opiate use was at 15. It just progressed over time. At the end, I was using alone. I didn't have any friends. Nobody trusted me. Nobody wanted me around. And it was miserable. How did you get them? Meeting people on the street. My first drug dealer was a doctor. Oh, really? I got injured when I was 15 and was prescribed opiate medication for the pain. That became a habit by itself. How did you realize you had a problem? It became very apparent to me by not being able to hold down work, not being able to show up for family commitments, not being able to be trusted by family members because you know, at a point I started getting my next one by any means necessary. I was trapped and I felt like I needed it, but I didn't know how to stop. And Laura, what about you? How did you realize that Greg had a problem? I remember the moment like I remember 9-11. Greg was watching the War on Drugs series on the History Channel. They talked about naloxone and symptoms of overdosing on opiates and the nodding off, like sitting there having a conversation and their head just drops and they seem to like have a micro nap. I recognized that it was very frequent and I was like, oh my gosh, it started clicking. And I thought it's July, he's wearing long sleeves. Where are my spoons going? Why do I keep finding pen barrels without the pen in them? How old was he then? Ooh, probably 19. Mm -hmm. Did you have any close calls where you thought you might die? Oh, yes. Several. Uh, I've actually have been administered Narcan before. Yeah, I owe my life to that drug as it, it brought me back. Who administered it when it, when it happened? Um, I was using with an, another using buddy of mine and put it in me. And he said I didn't even take two steps and I just fell flat on my face. And he freaked out and called our friend that was a couple houses down and she administered two doses of Narcan to me. Wow. And the second one brought me back, but I was still experiencing the high from it, which leads me to believe like it may have been fentanyl or something that was in it because it was nearly overpowering the Narcan after two doses. Some people aren't coming back from this. And I'm just wondering how long has this been a thing? If an addict hears, hey, so-and-so just copped something from over there and it killed him. He OD. He died. The addict mind says, man, that must be really good. Let me go get that. I just won't use as much as he did and I'll be okay, but it'll get me where I want to be. If you made a car that the brakes didn't work on, you killed somebody like that car's not going to sell very good. But if you make a drug that kills somebody, it sells more. That's the insanity of addiction. I understand that you've been sober now for about seven and a half years. How did you get a hold of it? Uh, the jail system, even though I am opposed to it, I had been in and out of jail a few times because of my use. And, you know, having the time away 
gave me the time that I needed to get everything out of my system and to have a clear mind and be able to decide for myself and not have the drug decide for me or the court systems or my family or anybody. But for me, what do I want to do with my life? You have to be ready to quit. You have to want to quit. Laura, what's your take on this? He's spot on. Obviously, he lived it, so he sees it. We don't have the treatment facilities that operate the way they need to. We still don't. We certainly didn't then. You might get seven or 10 days from the insurance in a treatment facility, and that's not enough. It takes two years for the brain to heal from opioids and what they do to it. What do you think would make a difference in addressing this? We have to go back upstream, focus more on the mental health, identifying and, and dealing with trauma as kids, especially, if we mitigate those adverse childhood events, we will reduce the substance use and worsening in mental health conditions that often lead to self-medicating and numbing. That is Laura Mitchell. She's the co-founder of Montgomery Goes Purple. That's a coalition that seeks to minimize the harm from substance abuse disorder. And we also talked to her son, Greg Hill, who has personal experience with this. Thank you both so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, companies say the affordable housing shortage is making it harder to recruit and keep workers. So a growing number are building their own places for employees to rent or even buy. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Starts May 17th, amrep.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Showers today, possibly with a thunderstorm this morning. We'll have highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, mostly cloudy with lows in the mid-40s. We may see some more showers overnight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with more showers from about mid-morning to mid-afternoon. We'll have a high in the mid-50s. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadl. Would you want to live next to your co-workers? No. 
Hey. <laughs> You're cool, Layla, but no. <laughs> what if your employer provided the housing and it was more affordable? Would you live next to me then? A growing mm. number of businesses are doing this because they say the country's housing shortage is making it harder to recruit and keep employees. NPR's Jennifer Ludden has the story of one company neighborhood taking shape in Indiana. Last year, this flat open space in Spencer, Indiana, was a wheat field just down the road from a Cook medical manufacturing plant. Now, it's a brand new subdivision. There are two rows of clapboard ranch houses, 14 so far. Construction crews are pouring concrete driveways. At the end of the dirt road, Tommy Jones is here to see the three-bed, two-bath home she's buying from her employer. It's her first time inside. It's so beautiful. (laughs) There's a cathedral ceiling, open kitchen with sleek white cabinets, a glass door to the backyard. Look at my yard, my view. It's gorgeous. Jones is a quality control inspector at Cook. At first, she wasn't sure she wanted to see work colleagues on her off hours. But they're all super nice. You know, I can see us helping each other out if we need it. And it's going to be a community. And that's how we're going to live, I believe. (laughs) I hope. Cook is offering these homes to employees at below market price. And for Jones, that's an incredible opportunity. She's 47, but has never been able to afford to live on her own. Right now, she's squeezed in with her sister's family. With extra pay for the swing shift and being a trainer, she makes just over $20 an hour. I would have never imagined that I could have a new house on what I make, but I can. (laughs) And I get a little emotional. (laughs) I mean, I'm just just a normal person, but I'm, I've never had anything like this. At the Cook plant, a wide door rolls up to enter the manufacturing area where employees wear blue and white booties, caps and gowns. They produce medical devices like catheters and needles. It's a booming industry, and these are solid jobs that don't require a college degree. But a lot of these workers can hardly afford to live in this area. The town of Spencer is tiny, just a few blocks around a central square. The whole county is about 20,000 people. There hasn't been much new housing for years, and what has been built is too pricey. Cook employees were having to live farther out with longer commutes, says Steve Ferguson. He's chairman of the board at Cook headquarters in Bloomington. We're by far the largest employer in the county, and you're trying to hire young people to come, and there's no place to live. There's a growing list of employers who face this problem and have also decided to build their own housing. That includes big names like Disney and Meta, the meatpacker JBS, local school systems and health care providers. At Cook, Ferguson says simply raising pay is not the answer. It won't create new housing. And he didn't want rental units. He says it's too messy to be both employer and landlord. He's thinking bigger. You don't build communities with apartments and rentals. And people don't build wealth living in apartments. The new houses go for between $188,000 and $212,000. To get them that low, Cook cut a deal. The builder works at scale, with no risk since there's a guaranteed buyer, and no realtor fees. People who still need help paying, like Tommy Jones, can get it from a federal loan program. We'd like to build them a house, 1,500 square feet, that they could live there and raise their kids and live there their entire life. Because that's what brought stability to us originally. I don't think companies want to do this. Uh, I don't think that this will solve the problem. 
Katie Fallon studies housing policy at the Urban Institute, and she gets the pressure that's driving companies to step in. But she says the affordable housing shortage is too vast for these businesses alone to fix. We have desperately needed housing supply for 15, 20 years. I mean, the rate of housing production has just slowed so drastically over time. Fallon says states and cities also need to build lots more housing. But anything that adds to supply is good. In Spencer, the head of the local Chamber of Commerce, thinks it could be transformative. Marcy King has helped Cook by organizing a lottery for would-be buyers, and she recently held an open house for interested workers and their families. And it was kind of surreal for me personally to be in that moment. She's a lifelong resident who's watched the population shrink for a decade. And for this young couple to walk through the door, and they were prepped and ready, and they had their checklist, and they were looking, and they had smiles on their faces, and to see the hope, I mean, it's so exciting. The long-term plan is for 99 houses here and a couple hundred near a different plant. Maybe more if there are still workers wanting to buy. Ron Walker heads up this project for Cook and says there is a requirement that employees live in the homes, not rent them out. You are not required to remain a Cook employee once you own the home. But if you try to sell the home within the first three years, we have the option to buy it back at the price we sold it to you. And we're doing that to keep people from trying to flip these homes in short order. Meanwhile, these first houses will be move-in ready by summer. It's so much bigger. We're in a tiny little bedroom right now. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, it looks awesome. Shelby and Ryan Bixler are both quality control inspectors at Cook, and to come here, they just sold another house, an old one out in the country that needed lots of updating. There just wasn't much on the marketplace, and so we had to just grab what there was. They thought twice about trading the country for a subdivision with houses so close, but decided it made sense. Living right next to people I think will be fun, especially as our daughter is able to start playing with friends and neighbor friends and having people over. And they already know and like one neighbor, Tommy Jones, right across the street. Back at her house, Jones says her things are already boxed up to go, and she's been buying wall decorations for months, planning where to put everything. TV over there. Family picture's probably over here. And she'll have a room ready for her niece and nephew to stay over. Jones dreams of the day she moves. I can't wait till I come in. I'm going to lay down on the floor and just nap. Because <laughs> it's mine and I can. <laughs> then she'll cook a meal for the entire family, she says, in her very own kitchen. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Spencer, Indiana. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, a Senate committee today considers whether the U.S. Supreme Court needs an ethics code after allegations of misconduct by justices. And at 840, a man who says his life was saved by a duck. It's 829. Later this month at WBUR City Space, a conversation about bullying, abuse, and harassment in the restaurant industry. Their ongoing problems, but have also been worn as badges of honor by some celebrity chefs. We'll discuss restaurant culture on May 16th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing today to examine the rules governing the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR's Windsor Johnston says Democrats and Republicans in Congress are calling for justices to be bound by an ethics code. Congressional Democrats have long pushed for the justices to adopt ethics rules that the rest of the federal judiciary has to abide by. Now, Democrats are calling on the court to impose a new code of conduct on itself. Today's hearing comes after reports that Justice Clarence Thomas accepted and failed to disclose lavish gifts from a wealthy Republican donor. Another investigation found that Justice Neil Gorsuch sold property to the head of a law firm that frequently appears before the high court. Hollywood film and TV writers are on strike. NPR's Giles Snyder says their union failed to reach agreement on a new deal before their most recent contract expired. The Writers Guild of America announced a strike just before midnight when the current contract expired. Talks broke down last night with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents studios such as Disney and Netflix. The Guild is seeking better pay for its 11,500 members in Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere. The Alliance says it offered generous increases amid the rise of streaming, but the two sides were unable to reach a deal. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The city of Cambridge will start giving low-income families $500 a month in cash. It's part of a new guaranteed income program the city is rolling out today. WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka has the details. The program aims to help low-income families have a little more economic mobility by giving them direct cash payments. Eligible families will get monthly $500 payments for a year and a half. Mayor Sambal Siddiqui says the city wants to give families a lifeline to help manage Cambridge's high cost of living. We want to stabilize as many households as possible and make sure that they have a chance to continue to stay in our city that, you know, is not easy to stay in. Cambridge expects to provide assistance to around 2,000 families. The city will start taking applications for the program next month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sininjor and Wameka. There's a plan on Beacon Hill aimed at keeping students in school longer. State Representative Antonia Cabral has filed a bill that would require kids to stay in school until they turn 18, graduate, or complete their GED. State law currently only requires attendance up through age 16 and the completion of the sixth grade. Cabral says Rhode Island and New Hampshire have similar laws. In order for them to continue their education and their workforce development, uh, high school is key. Without that, you can't even go to uh, be a community college or four-year college or any other post-graduation course, if you will, for workforce development. The bill would also set up a commission to look at the factors that contribute to students dropping out. Emerson College will soon put free period products in all bathrooms on campus. The move comes after students pushed administrators to put the products in women's, men's, and gender-neutral bathrooms. Emerson officials tell the Boston Herald the products will be stocked beginning in July. It's 8.33. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall. WilliamJames.edu. The Celtics lost to the Sixers in Game 1 of their playoff series last night. The final at the Garden was 119-115. to Game 2 will be tomorrow night. At Fenway Park last night, the Red Sox beat the Toronto Blue Jays 6-5. to The teams will play again tonight. Upper 50s today with showers and thunderstorms possible all day. Tonight, mid-40s, and we may see more showers. Tomorrow, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the mid-50s with a good chance of showers for most of the day. It's 52 degrees in Boston. At 834, you're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on Supreme Court ethics reform today as questions continue to swirl around the business dealings of several justices. Last month, a pro-public investigation found that Justice Clarence Thomas didn't disclose two decades of luxury vacations paid for by a wealthy Republican donor who also bought real estate from him in Georgia. Last week, Politico reported that Justice Neil Gorsuch didn't disclose the identity of the person who bought property from him in Colorado and also turned out to be the head of a law firm that has multiple cases before the Supreme Court. And over the weekend, Business Insider reported that Chief Justice John Roberts' wife made more than $10 million in commissions from elite law firms. Today's hearings will go forward despite Roberts declining to appear before the panel. Joining us now to talk about all this is NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Nina, why are they holding this hearing when none of the people involved are testifying? Because I think we're at a bit of a tipping point. In the last couple of years, Legal ethics experts who for years said, look, they're not violating the code of conduct, have changed their tune, at least certainly about some of Thomas's behavior. And the rest of these reports, they say, are just a kind of drip, drip, drip that makes it look bad for the court. And it's time, they think, for the court to write its own code of conduct. There's nothing wrong with a spouse having a job. Jane Roberts, the chief justice's wife, for instance, actually left being a lawyer and became a recruiter so that she would not be working for firms on matters that might come before the court. Um, And there's nothing wrong with Neil Gorsuch selling his property. He's allowed to do that. He should have said who bought it. But it turned out he didn't know the guy. The guy was actually a Democrat. Now, Nino, what can Congress actually do? Well, the court is a separate branch of government. Congress can't tell it what to do. But there is, for example, a bill that would require the court to write its own code of conduct that it makes public and is clear about. Um, And I think these kinds of suggestions will come more and more and more. Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas wrote that the reason that these news reports have such traction is that 
there's no independent person who can say, look, this is a nothing burger. Uh, in all the agencies of government, in Congress and in the executive branch, there's uh, some form of uh, independent investigator who can look at stuff and say, no, this is nothing, and can say, no, you need to do something about this. But that doesn't exist with the court. And until the court creates its own code of conduct, and I suspect tries to do something about having an independent voice looking at what it does, that's not going to change. So, Nina, how is the court responding to all this? The court is an institution steeped in tradition and steeped in opaqueness. You do not know what's going on there. And it says over and over again, look, what we do, you do see. It's our opinions. They just can't perceive the idea that times have changed and people don't just trust them. And because of that, um, as Amanda Frost from UVA, who's going to be testifying today, says, they are unable to distinguish they are unable to perceive how much trouble they're in. That's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Nina, thanks. Thank you. Later in All Things Considered, after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, Colorado was among states that codified the right to abortion. Now, Colorado abortion providers are coping with a surge of patients coming from out of state. Abortion rights and restrictions after Roe. Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. In the depths of the pandemic, something simple and beautiful happened to a man living under a bridge in Kansas City. A wayward duck started hanging around his encampment. And as Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, that duck gave the man a new lease on life. Brush Creek cuts through the heart of Kansas City. It used to be so polluted, people called it Flush Creek. It smells better now. It's lined with lush green space and teeming with birds. None of this held any joy for Dave Hughes. Not first. He's in his late 50s with a salt and pepper beard, stocking cap, and old backpack. Cast out from his job and his home, deeply depressed, he set up camp here just before Thanksgiving 2020. The first thing that I missed when I became homeless was uh, having a pet. I just, I've always loved animals. It just feels really good to make a connection with an animal of any kind, and not having a pet was a real problem for me. Then, one day Hughes spied a black bird standing out against a flock of Canada geese. It was a Muscovy duck. He kept watching it. A few days later, he woke to find the duck watching him. And she would just sit there facing me, making sure everything was cool, and she'd spend the night there with me. And then in the morning when I'd get up, she'd get up, jump in the water, and do whatever ducks do in the water. Hughes quickly realized that he and this duck had things in common. She didn't want to be alone, it seemed like, a lot of the time. I'm convinced that she came to me looking for safety and companionship, which was the two things that I really needed, because it, it's lonely and scary to be out here. Hughes and the duck hung out every day for well over a year. Then, March 9th, 2022, the duck was gone. Hughes searched up and down the creek for hours and hours. And then I just began to do that every day, and I began to really, really get in touch with uh, what birds are here, what they're doing. And it's, uh, it's like this gift that she gave me. There's a great blue heron right there. 
see them in the trees. The most elegant, beautiful birds. I could just watch these things all day. Oh my gosh, there's a pair of wood ducks under there too. Yeah, well that is so cool. They're just there everywhere. You don't really think about it. But there's this entire world, love, death, reproduction, everything going on all around you. And you don't really realize it until you just kind of stop and look at it. And that's what he does every day. Hughes has a stable place to live now, but spends his mornings with the wildlife on Brush Creek. You're laying in the grass, there's all these trees, and there's beavers, and there's otters, and there's all the birds, and the, the ducks come right up to me. A couple of the geese come up to me now, too. And it's it, it really, I can't tell you how much I look forward to doing this every day. And that's how Dave Hughes went from depressed to passionate, and how the underdog creek where he hit bottom turned into his happy place. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we look at why Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal appears to be stalled indefinitely on Beacon Hill. We may have a couple rainy days ahead. First showers and thunderstorms today with temperatures in the upper 50s. Tonight, mostly cloudy and mid-40s. More showers possible overnight, then mostly cloudy and mid-50s tomorrow with rain possible throughout the day. It's 52 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. New bills on Beacon Hill aim to ease restrictions on hemp and marijuana products in the state. Advocates say the changes would help local growers compete with hemp farmers in neighboring states. One plan would allow hemp grown in Massachusetts to be made into CBD products for consumption. Another would allow hemp crops to be considered farmland for tax purposes. Cambridge-based Orbital Therapeutics will use more than $270 million to explore the potential of RNA medicine. The startup raised that money in its first round of financing. Orbital says it'll fund more research into how RNA medicine can be used to treat a range of human diseases. It's 844. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, celebrating Cinco de Mayo and catering taco bars to offices in greater Boston. Online ordering at lacuchara.com. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is pushing for rent control in the city in the hopes of stabilizing the housing market for renters. A city-backed bill to cap rent increases at 10 percent on roughly half of the city's rental units has been on Beacon Hill for more than a month. As WBOR's Steve Brown tells us, there's little appetite for it so far among lawmakers. Massachusetts has had a ban on rent control for nearly 30 years after voters outlawed it in a referendum. 
but Mayor Wu has made tackling Boston's housing affordability crisis a top priority. The city council in March approved her home rule petition to exempt the city from the statewide ban. Now they need approval in the legislature, and that is proving to be a tough slog. The sole sponsor of a bill to back Wu's measure is a first-year representative, Democrat Sam Montano of Jamaica Plain. This is an opportunity for Boston to really begin to address its housing crisis in a way that they need to do. And I think we, as the state, should allow them every opportunity to succeed and, and serve the community in the best way that they can. To say the bill lacks momentum is an understatement. It's got a number and it's been assigned to a committee. But no other reps have signed on as co-sponsors. Many legislators are reluctant to even talk about it. The last time the question of rent control came before them, in 2020, it was roundly defeated. On this matter, 23 members haven't voted in the affirmative, 136 in the negative. The amendment is not adopted. Eleven of those no votes came from Boston reps. The argument against the amendment was that rent control could drive up prices of non-controlled units and that some landlords won't keep up their properties or make improvements without the ability to raise rents. House Majority Leader Mike Moran of Brighton says that no vote makes it hard to drum up support now. A lot of members will say, what is the point of even bringing this up? Because we are the, the overwhelming majority of us took a position on this two years ago. Um, do we bring it up every two years? To I mean, like it's, there's other things we can talk about with, with regard to housing. Why are we Why are we letting this take up oxygen? We can work on some other things. There are rumblings that a more sweeping housing bill could be taken up next year, and it might address some aspects of rent control. But Moran cites another challenge: Boston landlords don't want to be alone in shouldering responsibility for affordable housing. This is an issue which the solution can't be just on one municipality to figure it out. It's just not fair for that municipality, you know, and uh, the solution should be, I think, more broad than that. The Wu administration says it's not giving up. A spokesman says they're in regular communication with people on Beacon Hill, and they hope to make their case at a hearing soon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. There are warnings that pension expenses at the MBTA could make the agency insolvent in the next 15 years. Documents obtained by WBUR show the system is in worse shape than previously reported. On a recent episode of our podcast, The Common, host Daryl C. Murphy spoke with WBUR transportation reporter Andrea Perdomo Hernandez about the wide-ranging impact of this problem. Tell me where does this projection fit into the larger financial picture? Well, it's interesting to look at these projections just solely based on the pension fund and like the depletion or the devastation or the toll that it can take on the T in and of itself because the T has been negotiating their budget and fair revenues aren't anywhere near where it used to be. You know, it's been tagging off for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Ridership's only at 61%. So that, like, revenue stream of, like, fares is is mm-hmm. is not covering costs. So the T is, like, having to, like, pull from, like, p- pandemic relief funds or, like, other non-reoccurring sources of a revenue. Like, they're just tapping into, like, funds here and there to kind of cover costs. Yep. So that also is, like putting the the tea in a precarious financial situation. So that budget gap from like the revenues being low and ridership being low and all that stuff, that could create the fiscal cliff that everyone's been talking about over the last couple of years. And we could see that as soon as like fiscal year 2025. So like in the next year or two. So based on 
the revenue problems and like the funding problems that the T just operating costs that they have that they're facing right now, that puts them in a, quite a bind. And then like when you think about the pension stuff and like the effects that the pension could take on it, it's like they're fighting multiple financial battles on different ends. There's a new episode of The Common every weekday morning. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a Tuesday morning in Boston. You're with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how J.P. Morgan Chase's buyout of First Republic Bank may impact borrowers. It's 8.50. It's Margaret Lowe, WBUR CEO. My mother died 20 years ago on Valentine's Day, just a few months after her cancer diagnosis. After that, the post office forwarded all her mail to me a few states away. Even after she was gone, she got more mail than I ever did. Letters that painted a vivid picture of who she was. One from a former patient who had no idea my mom had died. Her foodie magazines, solicitations from political candidates. Then, a letter arrived from a good cause she'd given to for years, wondering why her donations had stopped so suddenly. On the envelope in big, bold letters, it said, Natalie, where are you? We miss you. I miss her, too, every day, after all these years. I wish she knew I'd come home to Boston, a city she loved, to run this station. She'd be so proud. My mom loved flowers, too. Send Winston flowers to your mom and support WBUR, a really good cause. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The U.S. Treasury Secretary warns that the country could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling. Today on Capitol Hill, the Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing on Supreme Court justices and ethics. Union writers in Hollywood are on strike after negotiations failed to produce a new contract. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. Cloudy and upper 50s today with thunderstorms possible this morning and a good chance of scattered showers throughout the day. Still cloudy tonight in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and a little cooler in the mid-50s with a chance of rain all day. It's 53 degrees in Boston at 852. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Joy in Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, now through May 21st at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org, and Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. That whole debt ceiling fight is about to heat up real quick. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. And by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Republican lawmakers in the White House are nowhere close to a deal over raising the country's debt ceiling. They have less than a month to figure it out. In a letter to congressional leaders, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the federal government could run out of cash to meet its financial obligations as early as June 1st. By Washington standards, that is not a lot of time to avert what would be the country's first ever default on its debt. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. 
Republican lawmakers are nowhere close to a deal with the White House. They are insisting on cuts to federal spending in return for increasing the government's borrowing authority. Democrats say meeting the country's financial obligations is not negotiable. There was some wishful thinking that negotiations between the two sides could go on through much of the summer. But recent federal tax receipts have been less than expected. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen now says the new deadline is just weeks away. In her latest letter to Congress, she also outlined a new step. The Treasury Department is pausing issuing certain types of securities which help local and state governments deal with their finances. That pause could impose additional costs, especially for smaller local government entities. President Biden invited congressional leaders to the White House on May 9th to discuss the debt ceiling impasse. The stakes are high. Economists predict a U.S. debt default could cause a global financial crisis. I'm Novasanfo for Marketplace. J.P. Morgan Chase now owns First Republic Bank. It bought the failed bank from the FDIC, which had seized it over the weekend. As the new owner of First Republic, J.P. Morgan is now responsible for $91 billion in customer deposits and $173 billion worth of loans. A lot of those loans are what are called jumbo mortgages, basically mortgages for really expensive homes bought by First Republic's rich clients. So what's going to happen to those clients and their loans? Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports. At a former First Republic branch in Portland, Oregon yesterday, depositors could access their money just like usual, only now as customers of J.P. Morgan. But for borrowers with mortgages from First Republic... It's probably not as seamless as that. Guy Sakala at Inside Mortgage Finance says J.P. Morgan has a whole lot of paperwork to do, notifying borrowers it'll be servicing their mortgages and getting their monthly payments. Frankly, there are always hiccups. Somebody forgets or they have automatic payment, so it's not as clean as just going to the bank and saying, great, my deposits are still here. Now, mortgages are contracts, so J.P. Morgan can't arbitrarily hike the interest on a fixed-rate loan, for instance. Many of the jumbo home loans are well underwritten with big down payments, so Sakala says they aren't particularly risky. But Mike Mayo at Wells Fargo Securities says it's not the mortgages J.P. Morgan really wants. The acquisition is really about the customers that they're getting for wealth management and other needs. The FDIC says for now, anyone with a First Republic loan should keep sending their payments in as usual until notified otherwise. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down two-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures also down in the one to two-tenths percent range with the Dow future down 82 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.548%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. For all you candy lovers, some sour news. The price of key ingredients, sugar and cocoa, are at their highest levels in about a decade, thanks to inflation and smaller crop yields. Manufacturers of sweets are struggling to cope. The BBC's Elizabeth Hodson recently returned from the world's biggest confectionery and snack trade show, ISM, in Cologne, Germany, 
and she filed this report for us. Confectionery companies are paying much more for the two main ingredients in most candy, cocoa and sugar. Manufacturing costs have all gone up. Bill Gow is the finance director of Scottish company Thomas Tunnock Limited, which makes 14 million items a week, like snowballs and caramel wafers. There's been a significant increase in all raw materials, an unprecedented level that you know, I don't think anybody in our generation of business has seen. The challenge is how to reduce costs but keep customers, especially when most of them are kids. Hayley Perone is from Candy Dynamics in Indianapolis. We want it to be affordable for kids. We want them to be able to not spend all of their allowance on our candy. We've increased prices, but it's been a very, very small amount. So have they considered making the pack smaller? We actually have started to do that, especially in the UK. There's been a big request for smaller pack sizes, and it's at a lower price point. At the premium end of the market, it's a different story. The Swiss chocolatier Goldken is most famous for its chocolate gold bullion bars and Jack Daniels liqueur chocolates. Linda Gay, the company's export manager, says they had no choice but... To increase our prices, but they are ready to pay a bit more in order to get the product. For the packaging, we try to group, okay, maybe to do bigger volume at the same time, then you can get a smaller price. But other companies are reluctant to change their product. Bill Gow, the finance director of Scottish company Thomas Tunnick Limited, is one of them. We would never reduce the pack sizes, we would never reduce the quality of the products in, in any shape or form. He says that although his raw material costs have increased by 40% in the last year, only a small proportion of that has been passed on to consumers. But with inflation remaining high and little sign of sugar and cocoa prices coming down anytime soon, companies are going to have to work hard to find solutions that satisfy them and the sweet tooth of their customers. In London, I'm the BBC's Elizabeth Hotson for Marketplace. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbertansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Showers possible all day today, and we may see a thunderstorm this morning. Temperatures will be in the upper 50s. It's 53 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. I'm Yasmin Ammer in for Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, the MBTA. There will be shutdowns this month, and the T's finances are looking a little shaky. How does this affect you? Text 617-766-0382. That's Radio Boston, this morning at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.